At Delta, we know Mike in 8C prefers reality TV to reality. So we provide more than 1,000 hours of in-flight entertainment. On the next flight, 8C is Mandy, a foodie. So we offer all types of food options. Because at Delta, everyone flies their own way. Delta, keep climbing. Hear that? It's the call of the Crave. And when the Crave calls, you know what to do. Try the $5 Bacon Bundle. Because the only thing better than a White Castle slider is a White Castle slider topped with crispy hickory smoked bacon. So pick any two of either the Bacon Cheese Slider, 1921 Bacon Cheese Slider, or Chicken Bacon Ranch Slider. And also get a small fry for just $5 with the $5 Bacon Bundle. White Castle. Follow your crave. This episode is brought to you by Progressive, where drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average. Plus, auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Quote now at Progressive.com to see if you could save. Progressive Casualty Insurance and Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. Today's episode is brought to you by the Annapurna Picture, Sorry to Bother You, which is coming out this July 6th. I just saw the trailer for this movie, and I am so into it. Like, I haven't been this excited about a movie in a long time. Have you seen the trailer? Uh, I have not seen the trailer, but I have seen the movie. I what? saw Sorry to Bother You when it premiered at Sundance, and it was, like, top of the festival for me. Oh. It's wild. It stars Lakeith Stanfield, who's, like, one of my favorite actors. And- he is amazing in Atlanta. You've seen him in Atlanta. I mean, and every time he pops up and stuff, you know it's going to be good. And, like, he's a weirdo. Like, he's such a weirdo. Like, when I interviewed him once, he told me that he grew up listening to Slipknot and Disney soundtracks. And That's been- what makes a Lakeith. <laughs> now I know. That's the, secret- that's the secret sauce. But I've been waiting for a movie that lets him be full weirdo he's never yeah. really gotten to go full weirdo and in this movie he plays a call center guy and it goes full weirdo Ugh. like boots riley the director of this big fan he's amazing this is his first real film and it is like it is the kind of debut where you sit up and you say whoa this guy can tell like a crazy satire that's funny that has actual real world implications that gets super strange and it's visually like gondry-esque it's Ugh. It's everything. This is the real deal. I'm so excited for people to watch this movie. I cannot wait. Check out what we're talking about by looking at the Red Band trailer, which is up right now online. It's insanely good. Sorry to bother you. It comes out July 6th. And until then, I have to say keep on watching the trailer because it's that good. Once a day, every day, that's my prescription for you. It's 1941. An old man drops a snow globe. The movie, Citizen Kane. I am Paul Shear. I am Amy Nicholson. And welcome to episode one of Unspooled. Unspooled. We will always say it together. That's our thing. We are so excited that you are joining us. And what we are endeavoring to do in this podcast is to watch the 100 best films according to AFI. This is episode one. We have 99 more episodes after this. <laughs> I keep on calling it a miniseries, but this is actually a very long miniseries. I would say it's more of an epic. We're doing some <laughs> epic films in this top 100 list. And I think the best way to kick off this list is to start with the number one film on it. I agree. If we're the Sherpas of film, we should start at the top of the mountain. Let's know what the best is, and then we'll see what else is out there. Let's map this landscape of the top 100. And we will start right here with the number one film 
of all time, Citizen Kane. Okay, so here's the thing. I am not sure that I have ever seen Citizen Kane. I feel like I know more of this movie as a general idea. Yeah, we know Citizen Kane. There are references to Citizen Kane in the world. Yes. There are references to Citizen Kane on The Simpsons. Here's one. Come on, boys. The old guy's finished. Wait! Come back! You can't do this to me! I'm Charles Montgomery Burns! Smithers, tip over this table for me. Yes, sir. I mean, so you could see that and say you know that that's Citizen Kane, but do you know Citizen Kane? No. See, I didn't even know that that's a reference to Citizen Kane because I never watched it. So I wrote down, though, before I watched the movie, what I thought it was, which was, I said, uh, newspaper man has no friends and no one knows why he said Rosebud. Being rich is great, but it doesn't make you happy. That was my <laughs> that was my <laughs> guess at what <laughs> what Citizen Kane was. Well, that's a decent guess. And we put out a call before yes. we sat down to ask other people who hadn't seen Citizen Kane, what do you think it's about? And here's what they said. I've never seen the movie Citizen Kane, but I've always imagined that it was about sugar plantations. I've never seen Citizen Kane. The only time I've heard about it is from people who, quote unquote, really like films. He had a sled named Rosebud. Rosebud, which you learn way later, I know the spoiler, is like his teddy bear or something. I, I don't know if he demonized sledding or or something against the sledding community, but it seems he turned on Rosebud. I, I know the Rosebud thing is like a twist or something at the end, so I'm thinking it's like a murder mystery. So my guess is that it's a murder mystery where it turns out the sled is the weapon. That guy's definitely a citizen, though. Maybe it's about getting citizenship. It's supposed to be a very good movie, and I don't know why I've seen it. I know why I haven't seen it. It's uh, hard to get, and old movies are sometimes boring. I think Citizen Kane's about a guy who figures out that his life is meaningless, and then he dies. I had a dream about it when I was younger, but I was too scared to watch the movie. Wow. Wow. That is amazing. Some really good guesses in there. Sugar. Sugar cane. Wow. The the murder mystery was amazing. Well, you see, this is so interesting because hearing those people talk, it's this is a movie that, that I think some people go, oh, that's a film snob's like favorite movie. Like mine is, you know, point break. You know, <laughs> and uh, you know, and my my take in going into it was First of all, wow, the scope of this is pretty amazing because it, it starts off uh, after the death with this newsreel of, of the Xanadu estate that Citizen Kane lives in. And it just seemed impre- – like everything about the movie seemed big and impressive and it was lit in this beautiful way. And then you start to understand like, oh, I've seen references to all of this in other things. And then I'm not going to lie, I would say within – the first 20 minutes, I was like, is my hot take going to be that I don't like this movie? What? But then totally switched over. I think I got a little bit confused in the structure of it uh, on the first viewing because we go from his childhood to him essentially running uh, a newspaper. 
and then giving up his newspaper because he's changing ages. He's doing everything. And I just didn't understand the timeline. And maybe it's also the fact that I don't understand that 1929 is part of the Great Depression, that like there's certain elements <laughs> like that they're queuing you in. In 1940, you're probably like, oh, yeah, that's when the Great Depression happened. But there wasn't an underlining of it for me to, at that one moment when he signs over the rights to the newspaper. But then when I went back at the end. Why was I, why was I getting caught in this moment? It all made right, sense. Right, whereas, like, if it had been made, if this came out in 1941 then, if it came out in, like, 2018 today, we'd be like, oh, yeah, that's the stock market crash of the yes. 80s, and we'd get all these references. And it's clear the 80s look at his sweater. Like, we can't tell that stuff when you yes. watch it here. Yeah, and I mean, and maybe it's also me being, you know, it's, it's I think, a it's interesting because it's a more challenging film and structure than most films of the time, right? Yeah, it really... I don't know if it broke it. It wasn't the very first film to tell a story through so many points of view, but it tells a story through like five points of view, I think at least. Yeah. And and jumps back and forth. It jumps through ages. He starts in the movie around five. He ends the movie around 70. And he's he, fantastic, by the way. Yeah. I, I love that performance. And there's something like so dynamic about him when he is playing age appropriate, I would say. Like when he is the age that he is. It's like, wow, this is a – like again – the way I know Orson Welles is through his commercials or the way I was introduced to him as a kid. No wine through its time. You know, those like those dumb clips. Yeah, that's what it was. The peas. Yeah, like the yeah. Nature herself adds life to the icy waters of a single spring. Period. I mean, this is an Orson Welles who imagined what he would look like when he was older and he was right and wrong. Like he thought, yeah. I'm Orson Welles. When I get older, I'll be bald and I'll be a little fat. Instead, he had a ton of hair and he was immensely fat. <laughs> you know, but the Orson Welles here, I mean, okay, first, like yes. as backdrop for people really figuring out Orson Welles as more than like the guy who did the voice of a transformer. Right. Um, a great job at that. Yeah. He was this guy who showed up in Hollywood with like a blank check, basically. They were like, yo, you run the Mercury Theater. You do crazy stuff. You're a genius prodigy guy. Make a movie. Do whatever you want. You have this deal that nobody gets. Like, right. we're not even going to ask you. You got it. And he made it more expensive. Like, he raised the budgets. He made them really mad at him. But he was Orson Welles. And everybody wrote about him showing up. And they're like, oh, my fucking God, it's Orson Welles. And at this point, he had just done, like, some stage productions in War of the Worlds. Is that about right? Like, that's... Yeah. Okay. Like, his first line in here, you know, because you were talking about the newsreel yeah. at the beginning. It opens with his death, with Rosebud. It goes to this newsreel. And in the newsreel, the very first thing that Orson Welles says here as Citizen Kane, as Charles Foster Kane is don't believe everything you listen to on the radio. And that's him being oh, like, wow. ha ha, you know I did War of the Worlds a couple of years ago. It just being totally self-referential and wow. kind of bragging. Well, it's interesting that this movie has some jo jokes and levity to it. There's And it's because I think, again, and this is me going, I'm a fan of, I, I'm not like, no, I don't like black and white movies. Or I love these movies. But there's sometimes... I think this movie feels like there's a chore, like, oh, it's going to be a melodrama. But there, there's a light touch to a lot of this film. And it's funny and it's uh, is relevant. And it, it just was different than I expected it to be. It's vital. Like, you yes. feel in this a young filmmaker burning his car to be like, yes. here's what I got. And, you know, even the Orson Welles that you see here isn't even the real Orson Welles. Like when he's playing young Citizen Kane and he's like a billionaire with his gold mine and yeah. walking around his new newspaper office, he is wearing hours of makeup 
and really? like a corset to look even as hot as that cane. He's like wow. making himself mythically handsome. Like people saw Citizen Kane and they wrote that he was the most beautiful man who ever lived. And he I, was like, I'm under so much makeup, y'all don't even know. It's so funny because I watch it and I was like, this guy, I, you are, he's like, that is a, that is a movie star. Like yeah. you see it. He's got the chin dimple. He's dancing with showgirls. Oh, that, I mean, and that sequence, I never knew that. Like, again, I, I'd been a... Uh, at Disneyland many a times and gone on the great movie ride and they always played that uh, that moment of him like slapping his knee and dancing with the girls. I didn't know that was from Citizen Kane. Like I was like, oh! Like, it was it was basically like um, the end of Usual Suspects for me. It was like the whole movie was like, oh, that's from that. That's from that. Because it's like the, the cultural breakout of this movie is gigantic. Um, it's hugely influential. Yeah. On so many levels. I mean... He was one of the first guys to ever point the camera so low you could look at a ceiling. Like people just filmed it like a play, and they're like, "Here's the walls, and we have lights." American above the ceiling. director, right? Yeah, because it was like I did a little bit of research. Oh, did yes. you? Yes, and uh, the, it was at the cabinet of Doctor Caligari. Caligari, yeah. yeah. So some people were like, "Oh, you're you're aping our style. You're stealing our. You're plagiarizing us." Like even like D.W. Griffith said something like. Oh, I I like what he did, but I liked it when I did it first, you know, or something like that. You know, yeah, it's, how? you know, it's so, but it's interesting. I wonder, like, because in like, in this time when maybe style was the only thing that you had to rest your laurels on, that it was like, well, no, no, I did the ceiling shots. Yeah. You can't now. You can't do that. But you know where I think Orson Welles was really, really a genius, and we're going to talk more about cinematography yeah. later. And there's so much to talk about. Was he was a radio guy, as we mm-hmm. said, and a theater guy, and that means he's a guy who was used to doing stuff without visual effects. He was used to doing stuff with sound. Yeah. And he does stuff in sound here that I think is as groundbreaking as anything he does with visuals. Here, I want to play a clip for oh, us, okay, by the wait. way. He had a budget. Yeah. Uh, he didn't have as much of a budget to build, say, Xanadu, like the right. biggest palace on Earth. But what he did was he figured out how to use sound effects to give the impression of something being gigantic. Like this scene where he's in his giant mansion, Xanadu, with his second wife, Susan, who's doing a jigsaw puzzle, and their marriage is very, very bad. One thing I never can understand, Susan. How do you know you haven't done it before? Makes a whole lot more sense than collecting statues. You may be right. I sometimes wonder. But you get into the habit. Not a habit. I do it because I like it. I thought we might have a picnic tomorrow, Susan. Huh? I thought we might have a picnic tomorrow. Invite everybody to spend the night at the Everglades. You hear the echo on their voices. You hear them raising their voice to talk to each other. You don't need a special effect for that. You hear the estrangement by just the way they're communicating. He knew that you could do that through sound. It's so interesting because I did not even think about sound and watching it. But now I'm like, when I just hear that and I see it, he's doing so much. And I think what I loved about watching this film was it has a very theater quality to it. You're watching long scenes played and, and not like not a lot of stuff in tight close-ups and people in shadow. And uh, it I, in a weird way, I felt more engaged being an audience member like I would be in a theater than being forced to be like, now I'm in this person's face or now I'm th- in this way. Like if you think about the opening scene uh, after the newsreel where it's all these uh, newspaper men, I guess, in this studio room, you can't see any of their faces and they're all having this conversation. Nothing does what this film does, in my opinion, 
that I've ever seen, I feel like. You're exactly right. I mean, the main character of this film, technically, like, quote, unquote, besides Charles Foster Kane, is this reporter who's on the quest to find out what Rosebud is. And he's, his name is Jerry Thompson. Mm. And if that doesn't even sound familiar, it's because it doesn't even matter. This guy is in most of the scenes yeah. that are taking place in the modern time, but you never see his face. He doesn't get a close-up. You see his profile, kind of. You see him from far away. But it's never like it's Jerry's quest. It's just Jerry's there. Sometimes he's not even in the shot. No, he's just talking to a guy. The most you see of Jerry is really at the last one of the last scenes of the film where the camera's like pulling out as he's kind of explaining why knowing what Rosebud is doesn't even make a difference because you know and, and the camera just kind of pulls out and it's like and instead of a close up it's a pull out it's a, it's the reverse of a close up <laughs> for Jerry's like big monologue that wraps up the entire film Mr. Kane was a man who got everything he wanted and then lost it Maybe Rosebud was something he couldn't get or something he lost. Anyway, it wouldn't have explained anything. I don't think any word can explain a man's life. It's true. Like, being Jerry in this movie is like being Sam Worthington in Avatar, where you're in the most <laughs> yeah. important movie ever, and no one knows you were even there or really even cares. It, like, the actor's name is William Olland. He was in Citizen Kane, and do you know who he is? No, and that's so interesting because now that you say it, I guess we are Jerry. In a weird yeah. way. You know, it's like that's like and that's probably the best way he could in film allow us to kind of go on this journey because we're sitting with those people. Like I feel like we're sitting with the best friend. We're sitting with his ex-wife. We're, you know, sitting with Thatcher. And then also I knew that Rosebud was a sled going into it. It's been spoiled by everything. But it was still emotional at that last moment to to see it burned. I felt I, I actually had an emotional attachment to that and I feel like it was the way it was direct like the way it's directed it's not even about the reveal it's almost about you know just seeing it lost among the rubble of all this all of his equipment or his junk of his life but you know the reveal of it doesn't lose anything in the film in fact what's interesting to me rewatching it this time was how they're just telling you it's the sled from like the beginning of the movie yeah like it's the sled he hit this guy in the stomach with the sled hey did you know that there was a sled yeah there's sled the whole way through he even gets that sled for christmas at his first arguably his probably first christmas away from being from mm -hmm. his house but i actually found that it made that scene in the cabin more i i was watching it more intently knowing it was a sled because it, you you see it, it like it actually helped in a way not help but it was an interesting way to watch it knowing Oh, like, I don't know. It made that scene have more weight to it. Right, because, like, the scene in the cabin you're talking about is when his mom has just come into this gold fortune on an yeah. accident, and she's giving him away to this banker named Thatcher, which is sort of a thing that happened to Orson Welles a little bit. Like he was, Really? He, he was orphaned fairly young, and custody of his money was given to a man named Bernstein, a name that he, like, reuses here. Oh, who wow. Who he actually liked. Okay. He liked Bernstein. But I guess this is a thing that happened back then. Like, you would just be given to something as a trust. Imagine a banker who's like, okay, so you can open up an account or you could just watch after a five-year-old. Like, yeah. that's, all right, well, it's a, it's a very, it's a very, uh, doing a lot of different things. Well, it's like the setup of an 80s comedy. But here it's like a 40s <laughs> Judge Reinhold. <tragedy>. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, the idea that, like, he, knowing that it's the sled, seeing that this is that moment that meant everything to yeah. him. That this moment he's taken away from his mom, from his dad. From his dad, and you have your emotions get all screwed up in that scene because you're with the dad who's like, Why can't I hang out with my son? Why can't he stay here? And then the very last minute of it is his mom saying, Basically, because you hit him. Yeah. And all of a sudden you're like, Oh, oh, fuck the dad. I'm so sorry. I didn't, like, I don't, who am I rooting for now? Well, you know, it's, 
it's a very complicated movie too because this character, and I imagine for this time, to have a, a main character who is essentially a bad guy, like everything he's doing is ultimately out of spite, right? Like he gets rid of his fortune or doesn't is not interested in his fortune and just wants to do a paper to take down the person who watched him, you know? And then it's um and yeah, it's then so personal. It's so personal. And then even when he is going to be, you know, uh accused of cheating on his wife, he doubles down on the fact that she is a singer and 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 basically builds you know, everything is everything is out of spite. And it and and it was interesting. What did you think of his relationship with his singer, his second wife, because he says, you know, I, I love you. And I like, why do you think he stays with her? Is it just to prove that he could make her a success? Or do you think in his warped way, he did love her? I I mean, I think he, I think he loves her. You know, he meets Susan Cain on the street. Like actually he meets her in a scene that Orson Welles always hated where he's been splashed. Susan Cain has been splashed in the face with mud. And then she's kind of high. I feel like on tooth medicine and she's giggling at him. And uh, he always hated the way his mud looked on his face. He thought it was too slapstick oh. of a bit. Orson Welles doesn't love this movie, honestly. He admires really? parts of it, but yeah. he was – even towards the end of it, he was like, oh, the scene. Oh, my God, where you can see my bracelet I forgot to take off. Oh, God, it ruins it. Like he really had issues wow. with it. But they're up in her room. That seems so weird when he meets Susan on the street because she's like, come up to my room. I have hot water. And yeah. you can tell he thinks she's a prostitute, right? Yeah, 100%. He totally thinks she's a prostitute. He goes up to her room. She's got the tooth medicine on. And then he's like, I know what will take your mind off the tooth pain. And he closes the door like they're supposed to just have sex now. And she opens it. And she's like, what? My landlady yeah. can't let you close the door. And that's when he starts to like her. And it feels genuine. Well, I mean, not to make this whole – podcast to revolve around this, but there are some very crazy, like, Trumpy similarities uh-huh. in this film. But there are certain things here about this wealthy man in New York who, you know, eventually goes to Florida, fake fake news to this, like, kind of tryst and, you know, this, like, uh, you know, backroom blackmail. Yeah. This idea of the people love me. Yeah, it's really some very heavy... Similarities in this time that made it even even feel like oddly uh, prescient, uh, you know, of this time. Uh, another way I think they use a sound in here that I love so much is it kind of a throwback to the Simpsons scene we just heard of him screaming his own name. And now to set this up, this is okay. at the end of the scene where he's decided he's not going to step down from running for governor. He is yelling at the crooked mob boss who's going to win the governor's race um, at his girlfriend's house. And he's screaming that he's going to send him to prison as soon as he gets elected. This is the lock him up of this governor's race. And check out what he does with the sound here as we watch the governor to be, the one who's going to win, the mob boss, exit the building. Don't worry about me, Gettys. Don't worry about me! I'm Charles Foster King! I'm no cheap, crooked politician trying to save himself from the consequences of his... Crimes! Dennis! I'm gonna send you to Sig Sig! Sig Sig Dennis! Sig Sig! That way of hearing the door slam on him mid sing sing and turn into an empty, bleeding car horn. That is devastating. It's so brilliant. The only thing I was confused about, though, and again, is like 
So he started off the paper with the most honest of intentions and then just continued to kind of go into more and more. declaration of principles, which which, is a real thing that Orson Welles actually did at the Mercury Theater. He was like, I have a declaration of principles. And I think even then people are like, really, Orson? Yeah. And then, and then, I mean, that's a great scene too. When it comes back, the the check and the declaration of principles comes back to haunt him. Um, but he seems to mean it. He seems right. to be an idealist. It, my friend David, he's a film critic, tweeted a thing once that the story of Trump is the man who became the most hated person on earth, trying to be the most loved man alive. Which is One. so much what Citizen Kane is. In fact, there's even a line where they say that. Wasn't he ever in love with her? He married for love. Love. That's why he did everything. That's why he went into politics. It seems we weren't enough. He wanted all the voters to love him too. That's all he really wanted out of life was love. You basically watch his downfall, the corruption of his morals. But now is that because I'm obsessed with this idea too, that like women corrupt men. I feel like this is like a narrative that kind of comes up a lot. Like, um, what, like Samson and Delilah? Well, yeah. Like, I mean, even like, I think in, you know, in modern film, like, I feel like there's this narrative of like in Phantom Thread, like, oh, this woman comes in and she messes up the thing that he had or, or, but um, your thing is held on too tightly, dude. You gotta yeah, let go. Yeah. And like, and I like, but I wonder, like, cause it, it's, you see his downfall through this conversation with his wife, not through... Yeah, through this breakfast montage where they get colder and colder. Yeah, and it seems like as his relationship gets worse, he becomes a worse person. Uh, But then... Maybe he becomes a worse person and it makes his relationship get worse. A hundred percent, but you're only seeing it, though, through the eyes of... Like, you don't see him at work going like, oh, you know, it's like, it's... You see him only there with her, and so it's like that battle. It's just an interesting way of showing it. But but then when he finds the quote unquote singer, uh, he d- it doesn't change him. It doesn't change him either because now he's already, maybe he's lo- he's locked in amber to a certain extent. Like he can't change because he, now he's almost holding on tighter, except for that moment where he writes the bad review of her. But then also that's done out of spite too, in a weird way. Yeah, I mean the reason why I think he loves. Both wives, mm-hmm. including the singer, is is well with the singer. He seems to be a child with her, and it's like right. if he's been questing after the sled. When he's around her, he's doing these shadow puppets. He's being a goofball, and right. it's him being a child for the first time in the film since he was a child. And you sense that that's what he's getting out of that relationship. And what I even wonder is if they're even boning, you know? Right. Because like he gets called out for having this love nest, but all we ever see them do is play piano, and I can be very fucking naive, but maybe they're only just watching him, watching her play piano. I I think the, you know, it's like you've heard this term, I think sometimes where it's like, it's an emotional affair to, you know, it doesn't even, the sex is not even the most important part because if you've given your heart to someone, and I wonder if it's like whenever he opens up his heart, he is getting almost shut down in a way. Like it's sort of like, you know, he he opens up his heart. He's now running for governor. He's running on, on again, these morals. I'm going to take down this corrupt guy and I'm doing it for you, the people. And then it's like, no, you, I'm going to take you down because you're cheating on your wife. And it's sort of like, a, it's a kick in the, or a punch in the gut every time he kind of allows himself to to be youthful or, or yeah. you know, I don't know if that no, tracks right, 100%. It's like this pivotal scene because up until this point in his in his life, we've just seen him gather more love and gather more power. And his yeah. white relationship with his wife isn't going that well and he's not happy. 
But he seems to genuinely believe when he's standing in front of that crowd that they love him. I made no campaign promises because until a few weeks ago, I had no hope of being elected. (laughs) Now, however, I have something more than a hope. Jim Geddes, Jim Geddes has something less than a chance. And he's so confident in that love that that's why he says he's he's just going to keep running for governor and trust that they love him enough that they'll get over his affair. Right. And they don't. And that's the first time he really gets that proof again that he's not going to get enough love. And that's where his whole life falls apart. So he's a man looking for family that want to be like that want to be with him in a weird way, too. It's like the first marriage is almost out of I need to go there because that will bring, you know, that that like, he's the, the niece of a president and I need to be seen in that way. But it's like, who really loves him for him? There's an element of that, right, you know? like the singer doesn't know who he is. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's so interesting. There's this little detail that I love when we have this montage at the beginning, because you know, this film gets set up with this newsreel where you get right. the whole summary of all of his life. And, you know, the first time you see them tell you the story about how he got caught in this affair with Susan and then they say that she's a singer, the first newspaper headline we see in this newsreel, they misspell the name Susan. Oh, really? Yeah, they spell it S-U-Z-A-N. And I love that because I think that it was on purpose. I mean, who knows? Oh, Maybe it had to be on but purpose. But it had to be on purpose because, like, it's this idea that she's not even that well-known at the time, but he's going to try to make her well-known. And to get that across with a typo – and not somebody being like, no one really knew who she was, that Susan, but just to do it with the spelling. And the fact that he forced her to perform all around the country. and Yeah, when what, she hated it, and she never even wanted to really be a singer. When he asked her, she's like, my mom made me think I should be a singer, but she doesn't even want to be a singer. I will tell you one of the things that I loved about this film was, to my ear, and believe me, I'm no Simon Cowell or Randy Jackson, I don't know that that's bad opera singing. I don't think it's that bad either. Right. But it's like, but I think that's one of the best choices in the film because she's good. Yeah. Not good enough. Yeah. She's good enough. She's not going to be the person that you, and I think that that's like a really uh, smart way of showing that. Like a lesser movie would show her like, ah, you know, like or cue you in. I mean, and they do it in very subtle ways, just like the board people in the audience or the, the two stage hands are like, Ugh. Boo, you know, like I'm gonna hold my nose on that one, (laughs) but she's not like it wasn't impossible. Opera is impossible, right? That's the thing. If his ambitions have been more realized, if he was like, You're gonna be the best pop singer, fine, but he had to make her opera, it like she didn't have to be opera, but he was only doing that to like he wasn't doing that for her, and that's he was doing it for him, right? Like it was all to save face in some way. I think the reason why he married her was because was to save face. To save face. Like, yes, I did cheat on this person, but here's the thing. I'm gonna marry her and I and I'm marrying her because she's telling like, it, yeah. it was to create this person who was going to be as important as the, you know, like he if he didn't, maybe he could have been president. You know, he could have been the governor and could have moved up because we're told, we're led to believe that if this cheating thing didn't come out he would have won this vote. He and, totally would have won. And his career could potentially would have gone up, but he sticks into this thing to be like, no, I'm doubling down. It's a good lesson for life, too. It's just like no one to fold him. He didn't, never does. And to the alienation of 
everyone in his life. It's true. Like, let's play this audio clip of him at the end of one of our performances when he's applauding. Okay. Because, you know, to set this up, I feel like without him ever saying, this is why I'm doing this, you you see it here too. Yes. Because they she does her big opera song. Um, we've seen the audience be sort of bored. We've seen her opera coach be freaking out about yes. how she should be doing better. You see her die at the end of this fake opera um, called Salambo, oh, where what? she collapses to the ground like she's dead and her arms are just stiff out like she's an insect, yeah. like a cockroach who just died. And it's so sad. And then she comes out for the applause. And at first, he's not even applauding. And it's only because he's so embarrassed, I feel yes. like, by what he saw happen. And it's when the applause dies that he forces it to happen. And while this is going, I want people to picture what she's doing here, which is she comes out very low on the screen, this hunched figure in her costume looking humble, looking like a looking like a little match girl. She looks yeah. she looks pathetic and she's trying to pick up her big bouquets and they keep falling over. And you so just, upsetting. You break for her. Again, great sound there too. It's so, and just hearing that lone clap too, like yeah. it's fading away. So there's still a lot more we can say about Citizen Kane, but I think the one thing that we can agree on so far is the movie looks amazing, right? Phenomenal. So we actually have a very special guest. He's a cinematographer who actually has a very unique connection to this film. So take a listen to this. So, Paul, let's talk to an expert, 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 genius person who can tell us things that we really want to know. I have a bazillion yeah. questions. We have Steve Gaynor, who is the curator of the American Society of Cinematographers Museum. Hey, Steve. Hey, how's it going? I, first of all, did not know that there was a museum about cinematographers, and now I desperately want to go because I imagine it would be pretty impressive stuff. It's pretty awesome, yeah. but uh, you can't go. You can't? No! <laughs> what? It's actually uh, a collection that the Society has built over the years that members themselves have donated. Okay. Uh, primarily, uh, and I've been there for almost 20 years, actually. Yeah. Uh, primarily what the uh, collection is about are cameras that have actually worked with these members uh, on films. Right. Uh, for instance, Roger Deakins, uh, who just won the Academy yeah. Award, donated his 16-millimeter camera that he started with, that he shot all of his documentaries with. Uh, oh, Caleb wow. Deschanel has do, uh, dedicated. And we also have the camera that shot Citizen Kane. Whoa. Wow. You have Greg right. Toland's camera? Yes. Well, it was actually Sam Goldwyn's camera. And okay. uh, here's how that came about. The Mitchell camera... Uh, was in competition with the Bell and Howe camera early on in the silent era. The Mitchell camera was a better camera system because, uh, and not to be too techno here, no, okay, but, but uh, there's a thing on the back that you can turn and allow the camera to slide over and you could view through the lens. Okay. And then you slid it back over to crank. It was a hand crank camera. 
the other camera, the Bill and Hal camera, you had to push out a map box, turn a turret around, slide the camera over. There were like four or five steps, and uh, people made mistakes. So then when sound came in, the cameras, they sound like sewing machines when they're running. You know, they really yeah. do. And ultimately, smart cinematographers such as Greg Tolan, ASC, and Joseph Walker, Frank Capra's cinematographer, devised ways of blimping the camera or, you know, in- encasing it in uh, material so that it didn't make so much noise. I knew that this camera existed, and I found the records from Mitchell Camera Company of all the sales. So I went through, you know, and it was not hard to see. Number one and two went to Samuel Goldwyn. And there were pictures of Tolan with these cameras. Yeah. And I'm like, I know it's out there somewhere. I found one guy that said, you know, I know I used to work with that camera. And he worked on the television series Kojak. Oh, wow. And he had used it and shot with it. They and used he, that same camera for so long? Oh, yeah. Well, you could use it right now. Wow. wow. Oh, yeah. You got any film? <laughs> Let's go check your freezer and see if you got so, um, Wait, you're telling me somebody ambitious could shoot with the Citizen Kane camera today. Without a doubt, and especially because of the efforts that I put into it in order to restore it to absolutely pristine condition. Well, I mean, I was going to ask you about that, too. Just because the term... Cinematographer is a, a term that people probably have heard a lot, but maybe not have that much familiarity with. And so can you, to a person who's not 100% familiar with that, explain a little bit about what your responsibility is when you're uh, making a film? This is my job from A to Z, okay? Mm-hmm. I, I am sent a script by my agent or by a friend who's directing, like my friend Joe Lynch. And I, uh, I get the script and I read it. And then I usually make a pitch if I don't have the job. Like, I assume if Joe is contacting me, I've got the job. I better have the job. <laughs> so so um, I, I will either do an in-person or uh, on FaceTime or whatever pitch to the director and or producers. And then if they love me, and I hope they do, then I, uh, you know, ultimately will go to pre-production. And your pitch would be something like, I imagine the look of this film as this style? Yes. Uh, Frankly, uh, my my better pitches are ones that somehow... coheres out of the director what he has in his mind before I give my opinion. So you're, you're almost like tea leaf reading of him. You're like, oh, he wants dark and moody. He wants saturated yeah. color. He wants... So um, as a cinematographer, uh, my job primarily is uh, lighting the set and putting the camera where the director wants it and uh, working with the director to choose the proper lens, and, uh, working with the camera operator and the director on the composition. And then, of course, I'm in charge of the exposure Back in the old days, I would walk around with a light meter and read it for the film. Now we look at the monitor and go, ah, a little brighter there, a little darker there. It's my job to bring what's in the director's head to the screen. Well, see, this is really interesting because, you know, Orson Welles had never directed a film before when mm-hmm. he made Citizen Kane. And yet here he is doing all these groundbreaking shots in his partnership with Greg Toland. The story I've heard is that it's because Orson Welles didn't know what you couldn't do. So he was just asking for stuff that other people wouldn't have asked for because they would have thought it was impossible. Well, ignorance is bliss in some ways. Uh, in other ways, maybe maybe not so much. But Tolan, you know, was an advanced cinematographer. What Tolan and uh, Welles wanted to do was they wanted to make the, the audience feel like what they were watching was real. When you're doing cinematography when you're, or when you're taking still photos, if you use a long lens and I zoom in on your face and take a photograph, the background is going to be soft focus, okay? But your eye doesn't necessarily see that way. You know, your eye has much more depth of field than uh, a lens does. So what Tolan uh, brought into use in, in Kane and makes it so astonishing to look at is the fact that 
practically everything in the picture, whether it's in the foreground, the middle ground, or the background, is in focus. Right. I'm thinking of scenes like when Citizen Kane walks up and sees that Susan has overdosed, and you have the glass, you have the medicine in the foreground, you have yes. her, you have him in the back of the shot in the door frame. Yes. Dr. Corey. Yeah, I feel like cinematographers will pick sometimes a deep focus because they want all the attention just on the one thing in the star. They it's want to tell the focus, audience yes. what to look at. Right. And, you know, uh, that particular shot is very uh, important because that's actually shot in a couple of different ways. Because some things are impossible to get that way, completely in focus, you can set your camera and black out and photograph the foreground object and then remove that and take the mask away and photograph the background and have both objects in that exposure. It's, it's a matting yeah. process. Would you agree that this movie was revolutionary and changed the way that films were shot from here on in, or is it just one that got popular? Always that, that is, you know, sometimes it's like, oh, well, someone else did it like two films before, but... Citizens of Kane is the one that everyone right. looks at. I, th I think what you have with Kane is you have uh, the perfect storm. You know, as you mentioned, you have a director who knows enough to hire a great cinematographer and also knows what he doesn't know, you know, and is fearless. He was, the guy was fearless. You know, I mean, he yeah. went against one of the greatest uh, newspaper barons of all time and Kind of lost, actually. Yeah. <laughs> you know, he was, lost in the beginning, but won in the end. Yeah, he was murdered. I mean, yeah. he, he, he didn't get any money f uh, in the end. You know, right. it was he did, yeah. his career was ruined, but basically, but um, he he knew enough to hire Greg Tolan, and I truly believe that Greg Tolan was genius enough to know that this was his chance. Right. This is the chance. You know, and I've I've had a couple of those instances in my life where you go, this is a chance to do everything that I've wanted to do. And I can get away with it. There's nobody that's going to tell me not to do it. Well, so who is Greg Toland to cinematographers? Well, he's still incredibly important. Uh, the, guy's, the guy's still, I mean, he died. He was 48 years old. He died in his sleep. Okay, wow. he had a heart attack. And, you know, you look at pictures of him, and he's always got a cigarette between his fingers. And he's <laughs> a, you know, and it's rumored, yes. I'm going to stress that word, it's rumored, that uh, he knew how to have a good time. Okay. okay? Uh, there's actually um, a bill in the ASC records for somewhere around 600 bucks. Seems uh, he threw a party at the ASC and a chair was thrown through windows or something. It's <laughs> 600 bucks in 1944. Yeah, that's a, a lot, lot of, of money. money You're man. telling me Greg Tolan knew how to party? He's an animal, okay? <laughs> so, you know, uh, that's, you know, he burned the candle at both ends, and, uh, and unfortunately uh, he passed away. You know, there's a bunch of famous shots that people always go to a Citizen Kane, the pan up from Susan singing on the opera floor to the men holding their nose. Sure. But what are the shots that for you, that like a cinematographer would appreciate, mm -hmm. that us civilians wouldn't wouldn't even know were so hard? The the shot that I remember that kind of blew me away in the beginning was uh, they're in the log cabin, right, in the beginning, snowing yeah. outside. And he's playing with his uh, uh, sled out there, and then the camera pushes through, you know, and I was like, how in the hell did they do that? You yeah. know, right? It pushes through that talk about getting rid of him. Yeah, and it, it pushes all the way out. The yeah, and you know they probably Hollywooded the, the walls window. out yeah. so they could move it through. So uh, that 
you know, oh, you know, I was like, okay, there's something there. You watch these things and you're inspired and then you go figure it out, you know? And that's that's what Tolan, I think, is to so many cinematographers is, well, how the hell do you do that? You know, okay, I'm going to figure out my way of doing it. It may not be exactly how Greg Tolan did right. it, for sure. I don't have the same resources. I don't have, you know, Orson Welles standing next to me. But I'm going to figure out my way of doing that. And then that all becomes part of your toolkit. Oh, so. Steve, thank you for coming in and, and, and bringing your – do you mind if I call it a little bit obsessive brain? It's fantastic <laughs> just to sit here Maybe. and be in awe. It, it, thank you for preserving this amazing piece of film history. And I can only imagine what it must have been like for you to, after searching for it so much to touch it for the first time. It was pretty cool. You know, I, I had it at my house and, you know, that it was the camera and me. And to realize even now to go over to the ASC and see it and be near it. And then, you know, look at the picture of Tolan standing next to it. Yeah. It, is a, it is a cool thing. So I always think when talking about these movies, it's important to kind of contextualize what was going on. Uh, Citizen Kane was uh, released in 1941. A stamp was three cents. The cost of a house was $4,000, uh, you know, and the average rent was $32. Movie ticket price, a dollar. The U.S. is entering into World War II, and Dumbo was the other biggest uh, movie of that year. Dumbo. So it's like— I'll stick up for Dumbo, though. No dissing on Dumbo No, right di- no, no dissing on Dumbo. But I think what's so interesting about this movie is, like, 1941 was the beginning of, you know, this— new era for America. And I think there's a, you know, obviously a lot of patriotism, like we're going in, we're fighting. There's also this rebellion against uh, authority to a certain way, or or maybe a, a grander power. I don't know if that is reflective of the time, or maybe I'm just drawing that conclusion. Well, that's so interesting, because I don't think I'd thought about this as being so alive in the moment until you described it that way. But the idea that we have a man here at the center of this film who keeps pushing people into wars. And was like, this war, that oh, war, do that war. Yeah. I mean, that's striking. And actually, whoa, now my brain is like doing another somersault because you have that clip in here of Orson Welles standing next to Hitler. And I always just saw that with my modern eyes. Like, yeah. oh, we knew he was bad. But no, you're right. If this was 1941, he was just beginning to be bad. We it's, didn't know the full extent of the bad. It's really interesting. And, and also showing like, I mean, and again, in the sense that it was ahead of its time, kind of showing like this is this is the kind of guy he is. It's a very, I don't know, it's a fascinating movie. And I think it's interesting always to see like the time frame in which it exists. In 1941. Well, also, wait, hold on, hold on, yeah. hold on. So if you went to the movies every single day mm-hmm. and your ticket was a dollar, that was the cost of your rent? Yeah, that would be it. Wow. I mean, I guess that's arc light prices. Now I'm doing the math <laughs> in my head. Well, you know what? I would imagine that you don't even have the choices to go to the movies every day because it would probably be the same – film playing at the, uh, you know, the same theater. Like, you'd have to wait a couple of weeks. <laughs> but you're getting a lot more for your, a lot more bargain for your buck. I mean, I love those Arclight stories. They're great. But I don't know if they're <laughs> that much value added. I'm getting newsreels. I'm all about it. So with a movie this good, you have to wonder, how did it fare at the Oscars? You would think this movie would clean up, at least the way that we view Citizen Kane. It's the number one movie on the AFI list. It was nominated for Best Picture, Screenplay, Actor, Director, Cinematography, Art Direction, Editing, Music, and Sound Recording. But it only won for Screenplay. Yeah, yeah, right. You would think that clearly Citizen Kane would just sort of saunter into the Academy Awards and be like, I'll just take all of these, please. I'll just put them like in my Boom, mansion done. of boxes to be labeled statuettes for whenever I feel like opening up them up and looking at them. But But no. It was screenplay, which 
it, it is certainly an amazing screenplay, but it broke through so many barriers. I mean, if you're not winning a cinematography on this movie, who, who could it have been? And the answer is simple. It's a movie called How Green Was My Valley. Are you familiar with How Green Was My Valley? I've never seen How Green Was My Valley, but I'm guessing the cinematography is very green. I have a look. I mean, it, maybe it's How Green Was It? Not so green. Or maybe it's <laughs> so green. I don't know. But as we did a little research, the movie is about the Morgans, a hardworking Welsh mining family living in the heart of South Wales during the 19th century. And the story chronicles life in the South Wales coal fields and the loss of that way of life and its effect on the family. Boring. That sounds boring. Well, but hey, you, I'm yes. Welsh. I'm Welsh. Okay, I, all right. I admire right. they're making films about my people. I'm a tiny bit Welsh. All right, let's, I'll, I'll take Did you uh, 23andMe that? Do you know that for <laughs> sure? Well, but then, still, that, How Green Is My Valley, that's not even on the AFI Top 100. No, and that one, Best Picture, Best Director, Best Supporting Actor, Best Cinematography, and Art Direction. Do you know what that says to me? What? That either says, How Green Is My Valley is fucking phenomenal and you and I are adults that we haven't watched this movie yet or it says Citizen Kane had some enemies this seems like a Weinstein style Oscar smear campaign you did you know by the way that Citizen Kane is basically like the story of film Twitter of 1941 no tell me how okay so people are aware that William Randolph Hearst hated this movie Mm -hmm. deliberately like this rosebud thing have you heard what rosebud really meant to William Randolph Hearst it was his wife's clitoris yeah it was his wife yeah 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 yeah. because he was in love with an actually very good actor this is the one thing that Orson Welles always said he felt bad about was that William Randolph Hearst was in love with an actress named Marion Davies they were together for 32 years and she was actually a really good actress okay but people thought she was bad because of this movie and he always felt a little guilty about that yes um but what happened was Orson Welles was like this toast of Hollywood, as I was saying, and everybody loved him and they were so excited. And you know there were these two major gossip columnists, right? Luella Parsons and Hedda Hopper. Yes. So uh, they were always rivals. And what happened is Orson Welles showed this movie to Hedda Hopper, who was already a little bit mad because she wanted to be invited to see it earlier. And when she sees it, she calls William Randolph Hearst the next day. And Hearst employed her competitor, Luella. She calls him and she's like, Mr. Hearst, I don't know why Luella didn't tell you this picture was about you. So then Hearst gets mad and he yells at Luella Parsons. So then both Hedda Hopper and Luella are just fighting to prove to William Randolph Hearst how much they like him by dissing Citizen Kane. So it's basically this rival of two film journalists, film Twitter, 1940, 1941, starting this fight for their own benefit in a way and getting Hearst involved. And then when Hearst gets involved... He basically says to um, RKO, who made Citizen Kane, he's like, well, I'm not going to put anything about any of your movies in this paper unless you burn the film. He really wanted them to burn the film. And he put this pressure on all of Hollywood. He was like, you know what, Hollywood? You're not that good at being like moral and righteous. What if my papers start telling all the studios what's wrong with all of the films? And so like Louis B. Mayer, everybody got involved and they're like, you got to burn this film. Whoa. And then it cut because it kind of went underground for a bit, right? It had a resurgence in like the 50s a little bit. It did. Yeah, because like what happened was Orson Welles basically like showed it to every single person he could think of. Like it was like test screenings for Oscar stuff. He was like, everybody come in and watch my movie. They might burn it. But if enough people watched it, he thought they would say, it's good. Don't burn it. He would get people on their side. And then the story is he showed it to – he had to show it to the censors who were going to make the final decision about whether or not they could have it. 
And what he did is he knew the censor in particular that who was going to be there was really Catholic. So he put a rosary in his pocket. And when they were walking out of the screening room, he dropped his rosary and he was like, oh, excuse me. And he picked it up and he was like, that rosary is why this movie got shown. Wow. Yeah. That's really interesting. Hearst was essentially running a smear campaign to, uh, you know, to get this movie out of the, the limelight. He really did. But also, I feel like RKO was so nervous, they didn't know how to really market it. I mean, do you know what their tagline was when they were trying to sell Citizen Kane? What was it? This was their tagline. It's terrific. That's it. <laughs> That's all they came up with. Citizen Kane. I love it's it. It's terrific. So – we're at the apex here. We're saying that this is the best movie. When you ask like Roger Ebert, he's like, that's my that's my favorite movie. AFI calls it its number one film. And I have a couple questions about that. First, why haven't they not remade this film? Why, why do you think <laughs> they have not remade? Because it seems like it is a timeless tale. You could remake this film now. Oh my right? God, I'm not ready for Citizen Trump. No, I mean, 100%. But like, like in a world of remakes, reboots, you know, the death of original ideas, why hasn't anyone ever touched this film? I don't know. Like, Ted Turner, I think, wanted to colorize it at yes. one point. And Orson Welles basically told everybody, over my dead body, don't even let him try. Okay. So maybe it's just an untouchable film. Like, you couldn't even get the rights to it if you wanted. Oh, my God. I'm trying to even imagine anybody who'd have the balls. Like, I'd love to see you – know, you know how Nate Parker redid Birth of a Nation with Birth of a Nation and, like, yes. took that title yeah. to say, like – Ta-da, I'm putting my own stamp on it. Yeah. I mean, you see people do riffs on it like Citizen Ruth, but— But it's not this story. Yeah. And it's so bizarre because I feel like the—it's—it I, I, felt very relatable in this day and age. It really did. I mean, isn't that amazing to watch this and be like, you are relatable? Like, yes. that's almost the last thing you're expecting, and yet it's super relatable. Absolutely. It's a story that—I guess it's a universal story, and you could even see now how— this isolation, it's like, I think you see this even more with, you know, like on lower tiers, celebrities even, you know, going away, like, I don't want to be outside. I'm, I won't be photographed. I won't be this, but I have this success or I've had this thing, even with tragic um, scandal, you know, like puts people behind a wall and you don't right. see them again. It's that we're more isolated than ever. Like, what is the Citizen Kane about Tom Cruise? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I'm like, a, what I, is that? And I like Tom Cruise, but I do what too, is the Citizen Kane of Tom Cruise? A whole other world behind that thing. Because I do think it's so possible to live in completely your own world. And also to be talking about news and fake news, the idea of, of Orson Welles and Charles Foster Kane as a complete purveyor of fake news. And he did not care. Yes. Yeah. There are lines in here, you know, everybody knows that this is half inspired on William Randall Hearst, although now it feels like it could be inspired on a bazillion other people who weren't even alive yeah. yet, who could have watched Citizen Kane and been like, oh, don't do that. But then they just did it anyway. Yeah. Nope. Nope. Doubling down. I can make it work. Now, my other question to you is this, and just to throw it out, where do you think this is? And it's a hard thing to say, but is this the best film ever made or is it a movie that was so ahead of its time that simply that has kept it ahead of the curve in a weird way. It's like, because everything in this film, from a filmmaking standpoint, it feels today like it could be watched now. Is that what makes it the number one movie? It, I mean, it has so many of like the stories that we love when we gravitate towards a best, which mm -hmm. is it's by a single filmmaker. Like mm -hmm. we love that idea of this genius who does everything, you know? Yeah. And here he is, this guy who wrote, directed, starred in it. He produced it. The idea of one man, I think we love that mythos so much. Right. Like here's the guy, 
you know, and then to do a film that's also kind of a little bit about him, like a guy who thinks he has the entire world at his hands, a guy who winds up, you know, maybe scrapping his potential the way that Orson Welles would grow up to do. That adds this like layer to it. And then the idea that it's just so technically mind blowing, you know, both on the sound and on the visuals. Right. I love that. Like, it's weird because I would not. To me, it almost feels basic to be like my favorite movie is Citizen Kane, and right. it's not like this isn't a movie that I like hold to myself personally. Yeah, but it's a movie that now I believe that everyone should see because it actually is watchable. I think there's a there's an element to when you quantify something as the best, or it it, it takes on this scholarly notion, right? It's like, oh, it's the best because oh, the shots are like this or blah blah blah. But it is still works as a piece of entertainment because it's it's you know obvious. This is the first one out of the gate. Is it great? hundred yeah. percent. Well, we're starting I, with the big dog, man. We're just right. like putting down the gauntlet. And it and it does it like it does feel of the now. It's be- like you know it's paced really well. I I'm just trying to get to the idea of like why is it universally considered the best? And I the only thing I can kind of keep on going back to is you did something so groundbreaking. Yeah. The first is always going to be the best. And to put it in the dumb guy terms, like there's a lot of things that are trying to be Pulp Fiction. There's a lot of things that are trying to be Die Hard, but they'll never be as good as those two movies because there's something about those movies that lay down this thing. It's like, oh, you did it the best. Now everything is a a copy of a copy. And I feel like there is an element of that in this, like, this feels to me like the master to a certain degree, you yeah, know. Um, or even, or even um, like, All the Money in the World. There's oh, bits yeah. of that here, too. Like, But this is a movie that I think is referenceable but uncopyable. I agree with that. Yes. I feel like a lot of great films are cribbing from it thematically or stylistically, but yet this one stands as uh, a great piece of entertainment. And I, I think the thing that I'm continually surprised by is it's funny – it's emotional like that. Uh, that scene when he does what we played earlier when Mr. Burns is wrecking the room and he wrecks the room. It really got me, too. It's like the way he moves, the way his body moves. Like you feel he is this 70 something year old yeah. man. He's it, a 25 year old lumbering. He cut his hands doing that scene when he's tossing the furniture around. Like, yeah. And he had like a can't, I guess, like a brace on in one scene that kind of hidden. Like it's no, I can't think of any other film. That has that kind of singular vision and that was so ahead of its time. And it also feels like there is so much left to find in this film, which mm-hmm. really fascinates me. Like you watch it now and you just pay attention to one one thing, like pay attention to like all the K's in the movie. Like where are all the K's that he's wearing? Oh, and yeah. he's got all these details in it. Like sometimes the K will be like backwards because it's not perfect. His, he's wearing a K medallion and it's flipped over. But there's just K's everywhere. There's this and detail. fire. A lot of fire in this movie, yeah, too. Yeah, the fireplace in their house that looks like he could be eaten alive by it. Like yes. Like, the fireplace is big enough he could just walk into it and be cremated in, like, one bite. Well, I think there's something about fire. I was thinking about fire in the movie as well. Like, I was like, and, you know, this is my my uh, my real, uh, like, basic film studies uh, version of my take on it is, like, there's a fire burning in him. But the thing about fire is it burns up. eventually – it will it burns it bright, burns but it will burn it will burn out. And 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 there's something <laughs> and the about film ends with ash. Yeah. Like rising out of Riding, the chimney. Yeah. There's something about that. Like Rosebud is literally burnt. You know, it's like his childhood is burnt. Every you know, it, you, she even turns off that light, the the uh the gas lamp. And you know, it's like it's there are these 
you know, fire was really something that I was really like watching a lot in this film and, and, and that theme of fire. Well, that's so interesting because I think of like the snow. I think of the oh, snow wow. globe. So it's this fire and ice thing, which yeah. I've never even consciously thought of before. And you have – I mean, let's like picture that opening shot really fast. Yeah. Where you have this zoom in of first the no trespassing sign. Like this is a movie that's going to explore a guy's life and it starts with a no trespassing mm. sign. On a chain link fence. And this doesn't even look like a mansion. It looks like a junkyard dog could be like one yes. foot away. And it just pans up over this. And then you get this montage of the grounds of Xanadu getting closer and closer to where he is. What I like about this movie is it has what I would call like the fun bullshit factor where you can look at everything in there and be like, how symbolic is it? Like when they get to the yeah. golf course, it says that they are 365 yards away from the hole. That's like... A, a day of every yeah. year in a life. Like, is it on purpose? Are we telling the story of a year in a man's life of time? It's such a specific number. And I, that bullshit ability fun factor. Oh, 100%. Like, I found myself when I went back to just rewatch those two, there was like that section of like three scenes that I was kind of at a certain point going, huh. I found myself totally pulled back in and watching it and almost, I haven't done that in a film in a long time to be like, let me just go right away and watch it again. So this is it. This is the number one movie on the AFI list. And we agree. It is a great film, right? You know, I don't know if you know this. It is a good film. Citizen <laughs> Kane is great. <laughs> you know, it is funny, though, because I do feel like I have, like, a block on some of these movies. And and I want to tell anyone out there, if you've not seen Citizen Kane, it is legitimately enjoyable. It's not like, oh, that was interesting for back then. It, it, it still feels of... The now, you yeah, know? Yeah, this is not a monocle-adjusting movie. I mean, yes. This movie deserves to be at number one. But yes. I think we should challenge ourselves right okay. now by skipping to the last film on the list. Ooh. Jumping all the way to 100 and seeing how that one holds up. Like, let's like, – I know we're Barely just Barely hanging on. <laughs> Barely hanging on or just so psyched to be there. We don't know. Exactly. All and right. that would be Ben-Hur. Ben-Hur, a movie I also have never seen. Let's do it. There's horses and chariots, and I want to hear people say what they think it is. So, If you haven't seen Ben-Hur like me, why don't you call us and tell us what you think it is, and then you can be part of the show next week. Give us a call at 747-666-5824. That's 747, like a plane, 666, like the devil, and 5824. And if you can think of a way to remember that, let me know that too. Thank you all for listening to Unspooled. A big uh, thanks to our producer, Josh Richmond, for helping us put this entire show together and everybody here at Earwolf. But more importantly, you, if you like this show, please rate and review it. That helps us subscribe on Apple uh, Podcasts. It helps us tremendously. We're just so excited to go on this journey with you. So we'll see you next week as we talk about Ben-Hur. Bye-bye. I'm Paul Shear. I'm Amy Nicholson. See y'all later. Hey, this is Arnie Niekamp from the Improv Fantasy Podcast, Hello from the Magic Tavern. I fell through a dimensional portal behind a Burger King in Chicago into the magical land of Foon, and I started a podcast. Season 3 has just begun with a brand new adventure to defeat the Dark Lord. If you're a new listener or you've fallen behind, Season 3 is a great jumping on point, and we've got great guests like Justin McElroy. I sound like a fancy college professor. Eight nights. <laughs> 
Rachel Bloom. You all see my collection of men corpses and one woman. Felicia Day and Colton Dunn. You've seen me have intercourse with a variety of species. It's a bummer. Andy Daly. You have the members of Genesis listed, but Phil Collins has crossed out and then circled and crossed out again. Uh, Yes, I have killed Phil Collins twice. Thomas Middleditch. (laughs) Jesus. I mean, Jazos. Ruler of the eighth circle. And that's just the beginning. Season three of Hello from the Magic Tavern is out now. Listen in Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hear that? It's the call of the Crave. And when the Crave calls, you know what to do. Try the $5 Bacon Bundle, because the only thing better than a White Castle slider is a White Castle slider topped with crispy hickory-smoked bacon. So pick any two of either the Bacon Cheese Slider, 1921 Bacon Cheese Slider, or Chicken Bacon Ranch Slider, and also get a small fry for just $5 with the $5 Bacon Bundle. White Castle. Follow your Crave. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.